if you have a Bible, open up to Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. We're going to be in chapters 12 and 13 today. Uh, we've got this week and next week, and then we'll finish up this book of Hosea. It's been a fun journey. If you've been with us, if you're just jumping in, I would encourage you to go back on our website and catch up on uh, the sermons and, um, and wrap up this book with us even next Next week, at the end of our service, we're going to be announcing our Easter services. So uh, we're already looking forward to that a couple weeks away. And so if you've got friends and coworkers and neighbors and family members that you want to join us, uh, we've got invite cards at the connect tables you can already pick up on the way out today uh, and start inviting your neighbors to our Easter services and Good Friday services. So uh, that stuff is quickly, quickly approaching. I want to get right to work today uh, in Hebrew, or, sorry, Hebrews, Hosea chapter 13. I know where I am, I promise. Uh, and I want to read a passage of scripture. The words will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. And uh, I'll pray and then we'll jump in from there. Hosea chapter 13, starting in verse 4, the word of Jesus speaks to us like this. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, and you know no God but me. And besides me, there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. I ask now, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, that you would come and you would help us understand this passage, that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would spike up our minds, that God, you would reorient our affections, you would reorient our instincts toward Jesus, toward the kingdom, toward the Holy Spirit, toward everything you're bringing into our lives, God. This moment is yours, this church is yours. We are your people. You died to purchase this moment. We pray in Jesus' strong name, amen, amen. Well, have you ever had a season or a moment in your life, something that happened to you that was so profound, so significant that maybe now your your years removed, your days removed, your weeks removed from that experience, but the moment itself was so profound that you can almost still feel yourself in that moment. It plays over and again in your mind with such vivid detail that you can see it again, you can memory, you can remember it again, almost like you're there still in that moment. It has such a significant impact on you. Or again, maybe it was a, a profound effect where years later you're still trying to get over that thing, that moment, that season that happened to you. All of us have things like that that have affected us where we're still trying to heal and move forward. And one of the scariest moments of my life happened when I was four years old. I uh, had went to bed one night, um, not feeling very well, and uh, went on to bed and, and was sleeping hard. And somewhere in the middle of the night, I needed to use the restroom. And so I spun my feet off the bed and I put them on the floor and I used my hands to prop myself up off the mattress. And when I did, I collapsed to the ground. And it was a jarring experience. It was kind of bizarre. I tried to pick myself up, but I could not use my legs. And so I started screaming. I started crying. I had my mom run in the room and she was bothered by the fact that I woke her up, but I was trying to tell her I can't use my legs. And so she's now alarmed and she picks me up by the arms and she lifts me up and she kind of props me up against her and then pushes me off to take a step and I collapse back down to the ground. And so I was crying I was screaming, my mom is freaking out. She throws me in the car. We rush on to the emergency room. And turns out I had come down with the strep throat virus. And some of you are like, oh no, right now I'm feeling a sore throat, right? <laughs> I'd come down with strep throat and it had settled in my cerebellum. And it affected my balance and it affected my motor skills and my memory. And I had to learn to walk all over again. And so long story short, the strep throat was healed in just a matter of a couple of days. But I went on, the, the, the doctors put me on a round of steroids, which is why I'm so buff today. 
and uh, I had to go into some intense physical therapy over the next year, again, at four years old, to learn to walk all over again. It was like I had completely forgotten what had happened at that point in my life. And my mom had always said it. She always said, hey, if you make the Olympics someday, we're going to have one of those stories, those those cry stories of like triumph and all of this stuff. And I was like, mom, I'm not that good at sports. Just let that dream die now, right? But I'm 34 years old now, 34 years old, 30 years removed from that experience. And yet, every time I hear about the strep throat virus, that I'm getting a sore throat, my wife comes down with strep, my kids get strep, I can still have moments where I flash back there into my bedroom where I was paralyzed on the ground. I still have moments where I can picture myself there again in the hospital bed wondering if I'm going to walk again. I I still have those, those tremors that come back. And so the reason I tell you that story today is to paint a picture of the kind of stuff we're talking about. So again, in the span of my life, strep throat was healed in just a few days, but it took much longer than that to get over that, to move past that. I have effects that are still on me even today, but here's the thing. The same is true what's going on in our salvation from sin. The same thing is true what's going on in our salvation from sin and the unfaithfulness in our hearts. So when we've been in the book of Hosea, what we've seen is that time after time after time, God is chasing us down. God is winning us over as his people. And moment after moment after moment, he's bringing us back to reconciliation. But here's what we're also seeing. Those old instincts of spiritual adultery don't leave us as quickly as God's able to reconcile us, Right? In the life of Israel, those old instincts of spiritual adultery are still on us. Those old instincts of wanting to wander away from God are still on us, even though in a moment we've been reconciled. Think about your own salvation, right? Salvation comes to you in a moment by placing your faith in Jesus, free from sin, free from bondage. But for any of you who've traveled with Jesus for years, maybe even two days in the faith, you know this to be true. Those old desires for sin those old instincts back to that old way of life and the draw to look back on those old things, even still with fondness, they haven't left you as quickly as salvation came to you. They're still on you. In many ways, we're haunted by those old patterns. We're haunted by those old instincts more than any of us even want to recognize. We're free from sin. We're free from unfaithfulness. We're free to be free to God and love God. We're free to be faithful to God. And yet those old instincts still hunt us down. And so when we jump in here to Hosea chapter 12 and 13, that's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, What I want us to see today is the way that God works with Israel, the same way that he works with us to move out those old impulses, move out those old instincts, and then reorder us, reform us, recalibrate us with new instincts to be the free and the faithful people that he's actually chased us down and purchased us to be. So there's three ways he does this. He calls us to obedience. He takes us to the wilderness and he shows us his greatness. He calls us to obedience. He takes us to the wilderness, and he shows us his greatness. So if you've got a Bible, go back to chapter 12, Hebrew, or Hosea chapter 12, and look at verse three. He calls us to obedience. It says this, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met with God at Bethel, And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So when we open up 
chapters 12 and 13, there's several different moments here that, that come up from Israel's past, lessons and events from Israel's past. And God is using these moments as, as a reminder of how far they've come and how far he's brought them. So in chapter 12 here, it opens up with a flashback to, to their forefather Jacob and the moment he wrestled with God, the moment he fought God in the middle of the night and the moment that Israel received its name. That story of Jacob wrestling God happens all the way back in Genesis chapter 32. But now it's being mentioned again here in Hosea chapter 12 as a reminder to Israel, as a reminder to even us, God is saying, hey, listen, I've met with you. I've met with you in the darkest of moments. I've placed my name upon you. You've resisted me. You've wrestled with me. You've rejected me. And yet I've blessed you. Look again at verse four. He says, he strove with God, with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met with God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. And so because of that, verse six, so you by the help of your God return, hold fast to love, hold fast to justice and wait continually for your God. Here's what God is saying. You don't have to go chase the good life anymore apart from me. You don't have to wrestle anymore. I've given you new life as my people. I've placed my name on you. You're not who you once were. And so just like your forefather Jacob would hold on to me until I've blessed you, I've blessed you. So now you hold tight to love, to justice, and you hold tight to faithfulness and step into this obedience of new life with your God. So here's what's interesting about this call that Israel receives to obedience. God speaks this word to him. God speaks this word to Israel while they were in exile, while they were far from home. And he says this, I want you to walk in obedience with me because I'm taking you back home and I want to reform you with new instincts, new impulses of freedom and faithfulness so that when you get back home, you'll enjoy it like it's supposed to be enjoyed. You'll see it and you'll value it for everything that it actually is. God's trying to form them anew with a call to obey. And the same thing works with you and me. Here's what I mean. When God brings salvation to you, God's not interested in giving you some experience back there in the past that you want to call salvation, but it has no effects. It bears no realities into your life today, right? This is so much of the game we play in Bible Belt Christianity. So, so some of us want to walk around and call ourselves Christians because of some prayer that we prayed way back there at VBS making popsicle stick crafts. Some of us want to call ourselves Christians because of some prayer that we prayed back there at youth camp where we threw our stick in the fire as a teenager, right? And yet the reality is that prayer that you prayed back then, fine as it may have been, it bears no reality, no life change in your present moments day to day, right? Yet you still want to call yourself a Christian, but the reality is there's no life change, Uh, there's no reordering of your delights, having more of God in your life, enjoying more of him, your own ambitions, your own instincts, your own pursuits in life look exactly the same as your friends and your coworkers who don't know Jesus. You're just as hungry for, for power. You're just as hungry for approval. You're just as promiscuous. You're just as materialistic, right? But here's the reality. Jesus did not save any one of us just to leave us the same as we would have been anyways, to carry on with our life, just like we would have lived it anyways, only to give us a new occasional Sunday morning hobby. We'll call it church. He's not saved you for that. So obedience to Jesus isn't about begrudging submission. Obedience to Jesus isn't about living your life as a suppressed prude or boredom. That's not what obedience to Jesus is. Obedience to Jesus is not even 
this sort of have to game that we play. Well, I've got to obey Jesus because I've confessed him as Lord. I'd rather not. I'd rather have more fun, but I've got to obey. No, 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 no. Obedience to Jesus is about a new reality that you and I get to receive because there was a moment in our life apart from God's grace when obedience wasn't even an option. There was a time in your life apart from God's grace when obedience to Jesus, life with God, wasn't even an option for you. And now that it is, it's not a have-to game. It's a new reality you see because he has delivered us and not judged us. So now we want to bring our whole life underneath his reign, underneath his authority, by his word to say this is where life is found. And so you don't obey God. You don't obey God. Just like Israel, they don't obey God to get God to love them. That's dead religion. You obey God because he already has loved you through the roar of Jesus. He's already loved you. And so now God calls us to obey him, align our whole life around his commands for your joy and to reform in you new impulses and new instincts to actually be the free and the faithful people that he's chased you down to be, right? But I want you to notice obedience to God isn't a, you better work really hard. You better white your knuckles and prove yourself because notice what he says in six. So you, by the help of your God, we learn to obey God step by step. Anyone who's lived the Christian life in an honest way knows it's three steps forward, four steps back. One step forward, two steps back. You obey God step by step. Sometimes you fail. We'll try again tomorrow but you do so by the help of your God, right? And so he calls you to obey. This is one of the ways he reforms us as his people. It's not a curse. It's not a killjoy. It's actually freedom. It's actually wings to go live like the faithful people he chased you to be. So the first thing he does, he calls us to obey. The next thing he does though, is he leads us to the wilderness. Look again at verse eight. It says this, Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. And I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So this is a really hard verse to read. And here's what I mean. It's just two verses after what we just read where God called them to obedience. It's like Israel heard God say, hey, I want to call you to obedience. Hold fast to me, just like your forefather Jacob held fast to me and didn't let go. You do the same thing. And Israel had a cued up response. Israel had a knee jerk response. They had a matter of fact response. Okay, God, I hear you with this whole obedience talk, but I'm just fine. No, I don't want what you have to provide. I don't want anything you have to give me. In fact, I'm doing just fine my way. And there's no, there's no sin in my life. There's nothing wrong with the way that I'm living. Over and over and over again, this is Israel's response to God. No, God, I'm doing just fine. Thanks. But it's not just Israel's response. It's also ours. And none of us would say this out loud. Like we've all played the religious game too long. None of us would say what Israel just said here out loud. We're far more domesticated, right? We may not even think this explicitly, but it shows up in the artifacts of our life, doesn't it? So think about it. For some of you, it's the way you handle your money. For some of you, it's the way you seek out certain relationships for security. For for some, it's the way you have these addictions and these things you drift toward when no one is watching and you're in those private spaces, right? All of us have those areas of our life where we would just rather God leave us alone. 
Every one of us has those spaces. God, I'll give you these things. I'll let you have these areas of my life, but there's these other areas. That's for me. That's for what I want to do with. I get to rule. I get to reign. I get to have authority there. You can have this. And then what we'll do is we'll give ourselves excuses. We'll start playing self-justifying mind tricks to convince ourselves that these certain areas of excuse are okay because there's other areas of our life that balance us out. And after all, we're good people. So here's what I mean. What's one more drink? I've had a hard week at work. I'm not interested in talking about forgiveness and dealing with bitterness and anger. Not after what that person did to me. I deserve to feel this way. It's just porn. It's not hurting anybody. After all, God knows that I'm lonely. I don't need to pray. I've got enough self-control. I've got enough, enough discipline to hold my life together. So I may have tapped on your sentiment. I may have left it unsaid. But every one of us knows those areas where we want to give ourselves an excuse, say something is okay with a qualifying statement of surely why it is. And yet none of those sentiments are near to the heart of God. But I'll tell you where they come from. They come in me too. I'll tell you where those statements, where those inner dialogues come from. They come from the years of accumulated spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness. Those are our old instincts. Those are our old instincts. And so what God's trying to do is bring those to the surface, bring those out and reform us. So I'll show you how he responds to Israel. Look at verse nine. Here's how God responds to them coming back to him with no thanks. Verse nine but I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. And I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. So here's what God does. He responds and he pulls out a page from their history of when he rescued them from Egypt and led them out into the wilderness. And God here says, I'm going to make you live in tents again. I'm going to take you out into the wilderness again. I'm going to strip you of your comfort. I'm going to strip you of your preferences. I'm going to strip you from what's familiar in order to get your attention and save you. And here's what the interesting reality is about the wilderness. Here's the hard truth of the wilderness of God. You see, very often we think that the wilderness is the problem, right? Seasons of difficulty, seasons of instability, seasons when your comforts, are stripped from you and your preferences go away. We think that that's the problem. The reality is that's not the problem. The wilderness does not create your trust problems and your frustration with God, right? The wilderness actually reveals what's already in your heart. So often we think if my circumstances would just change, if I did have different experiences, then I would act different. Then I would be better. God, then I would give you what you want from me. Just change my circumstances. No, 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 no. The wilderness reveals what's already in your heart. The wilderness isn't the problem. God brought you there. God takes you out there, right? So if you're like me, very often what I want, I think what we want is we want the blessing of God without the discipline of God, don't we? So what we want is we want more of God's peace, more of God's tranquility, more confidence with God, more of God's blessing, but we don't want to undergo the surgery of God or listen to him correct us in areas of our life that could actually be standing in between our experience of his peace and his blessing, right? He's actually trying to draw those things out of us. He takes us to the wilderness to show us what's really in there. 
what's really in there. And so what happens is what, what you and I want with God is what we want. God, here's what I want. And what I want is you to be okay with that and you to bless that. And then I wanna pray for you to protect me from all the things that will keep me from what I want. But God doesn't work that way. He's not some cosmic bellboy in the sky that's out to run all of our errands. That's not who God is. He's a father who loves us too much to leave us to carry on indulging ourselves in all of our own passions apart from him. He loves us too much. And so what does he do? From time to time, in the severe mercy of God, he'll take you by the hand and he'll lead you into a season that's unfamiliar, that's not comfortable, all your preferences are removed, and you can't tell where you're at by your surroundings because you've never been there before. And it's exactly where God wants you to be. It's the wilderness. And he says, I brought you here to show you what's inside of you, to get your attention and to restore you. It feels in those moments like God's killing us. He's actually saving us. He's actually saving us. He's actually trying to save Israel from their own stupidity of responding that way. Same with us. So here's a few questions to kind of determine where you are maybe in a wilderness season. The first one, where in your life, where, where in your life are you exhausted from trying everything in your own strength, but getting no results? Where in your life are you exhausted from trying everything in your own strength, but getting no results? Where in your life, in your thoughts, in your relationships, do you seem to keep hitting a wall? Where in your life are you growing increasingly impatient and struggling to find rest? One more. Where in your life have you found your affections and your heart for the things that you know God wants for you? Where have you found your affections and your heart to become dry? See, the answer to some of those questions are indications of where God is leading you into the wilderness. He's trying to lead you out into those places. He's using those things as triggers and as signposts. I'm trying to get your attention so I can speak to you, so I can meet you there and save you. You're not out there by accident. God leads you there. God leads you there. And he's trying to form in you a new instinct to freedom and to faithfulness like he chased you to be, right? So God leads us to obedience. He leads us in the wilderness. And the last thing today, he shows us his greatness. He shows us his greatness. Look at verse four of chapter 13. He says, but I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. You know, no God, but me and beside me, there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. So if you've been with us through the book of Hosea, you've recognized there's a constant refrain that moves throughout the book, right? It goes like this. We rebel. God chases us. God corrects us. We respond. God reminds us of his love and then rinse and repeat. We rebel. God chases us. God corrects us. We respond. God reminds us of his love. And that's exactly what's happening here in chapter 13, verse four. God is trying to say, here's my greatness. I want you to hear of my greatness. There's no season of your life, Israel, that I had not been present with you. I was with you in Egypt. I was with you in the wilderness. I was with you in the land of the drought when you thought all was lost. There is no one besides me and beside me, there is no savior. And so God is saying to us, 
There's no season of your life where he's not been present. I want you to sit on that for a second. There's no season of your life where God has not been present. There's no tear that you've cried that he hasn't seen. There's no loss or disappointment that has ever caught God by surprise. There's no rebellion that you've ever acted out against God that caused him to second guess on you. And the fact, the reason that you're here today, maybe some of you stumbled into church and you're not even sure why you're here. You're not even sure why you're still listening to me. The reason that any of us are here is because God is the one who's keeping our life. He's the one who's brought us thus far. He's the one who's keeping this whole thing together. You matter to God. You matter to him. He says, I am the Lord, your God, and there is no savior beside me. Stop running. He's always been present in the first place. But here's what I love about how this passage ends. God doesn't just tell us of his greatness. He shows it to us. He shows it to us. Look at verse 14. It says this, shall I ransom Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? That is the grave. He says, shall I, shall I buy them back from the power of Sheol? It's a rhetorical question. Shall I redeem them from death? Then he says this, oh, death, where are your plagues? Where's your victory? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Here's what we've seen in the book of Hosea. God has proven there is nothing that will stand between him and his great love for us. Nothing, not your adulterous heart, not your slowness to respond to him and your slowness to learn the lessons he's teaching to you, not the religious games that you play with him, uh, not even, not even death itself in this passage. Nothing will stand between God and his people. And so what God says here is, listen, I've proven through this whole book, I'll chase you down. There's no price I won't pay. In chapter 11, I roar for you. And here in chapter 13, oh yeah, death, I'll take care of that too. God says, oh death, where is your victory? Where is your plagues? Oh death, where is your sting? And then I love this. He says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. And when God says that, it's not as though he's pouring out his wrath on us. He's saying, I will have no mercy on anything that threatens to stand between me and my people. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. The promise of Hosea chapter 13 can be seen and the promise of Hosea chapter 13 is shown off in the greatness of Jesus because what's going on here has everything to do with everything Jesus accomplished for us. Here's what I mean. Run with me here. The beauty of Jesus is not just that God sent his son to die and pay the price for your sins. That's beautiful. It's incredible. But if we stop at the death of Jesus we've stopped short of his majesty because he did die. That's true. But he also got up out of the grave stronger and better than he was before, right? So the death of Jesus means sin will not get the final word over you. God does. But the death of Jesus means death is defeated too. God gets the final word again. Death is no longer an enemy to you. It's a servant to you. Jesus has defeated it. He came to lay death in its own grave for all who look to him. For all who look to him. 
And he says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. I will have no compassion on the enemies of my people. I will not leave a single thing breathing. My people will be mine and all of their suitors will go away. There is no fear in perfect love. There is no fear in perfect love. And so the beauty of Hosea chapter 13 is repeated in the New Testament in Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen again, Acts 2, 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held down by it. Death cannot hold down the author of life. Death can't hold the author of life. Death serves his own commands. It's beautiful. We're getting to Easter before Easter. But look at what it says here. There's there's one more thing I want to show you because the resurrection of Jesus means something for you and I. John chapter six, listen to the heart of Jesus for you. Listen to the heart of Jesus for you in resurrection. John six, all the father gives to me will come to me. All the father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. You hear that? Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, in case you're wondering, that I should lose nothing, that I should lose nothing, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You hear that? The heart of God shown to us in the greatness of Jesus means, listen, church, you're not up for grabs. You're not up for grabs. For all those who look to Jesus, listen to what this passage says. He'll never cast you out. He will not lose you. He will raise you up. His resurrection points to your future resurrection. He will get you home. He will get you home. He will not lose you. He's locked in on you. What kind of God is this? I am the Lord, your God, he says, and there is no savior besides me. He's reforming us as his people. He does it. He calls us to obedience. He takes us out to the wilderness and he shows us his greatness as a way of melting our hearts. And here's what happens if you're like me on this moment. You want to say with Peter in John six, Jesus, where else am I going to go? I don't want to go anywhere else for you alone have the words of life. Where else am I going to go? Melt my heart, reshape me, rid me of those old instincts and give me new impulses of freedom and faithfulness that you purchased me for. This is our God. Amen.